Hello and welcome to Culture Sex Relationships with me, Justin Hancock. I'm absolutely delighted and thrilled to be joined once again. Uh, second time champion, third time champion, kind of, because we had done podcasts before on uh, on Dave's own podcast. Dave Pickering, welcome to the show, Dave. Hello, everyone. <laughs> nice to be here. Uh, if you don't know about Dave's work, they are a, a podcaster, an early adopter podcaster, as we found in the episode that we recorded on podcasts, the most meta of all uh, <laughs> shows. Um, and uh, we were having a chat about podcasts before we had to stop ourselves recording another show about yeah. podcasts, didn't we, Dave? I need to talk about other things in my life that aren't podcasts, and I'm very, very <laughs> pleased that you're giving me the opportunity today. <laughs> well, <laughs> look at this as some form of, <laughs> some form of uh, self-care, therapy. Yeah, anytime you want to do this, because uh, I like having guests as well. Um, <laughs> sometimes I'm just, you know, staring at the screen and my own waveform right. on audacity and i'm like oh this isn't as much fun as it could be so um so i invited dave on because we wanted to talk about um I, well i actually had a request from one of my patrons uh, that's patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships um but they wanted us to talk about um covid and uh, i'm not going to read that question out because uh, it goes into quite a bit of detail but it is just this kind of the question was saying well some of us are still shielding. Some of us, some of us are still immunocompromised. Some of us are going through um, various treatments, which means that we have to be really careful about COVID. Some folk also have experienced still experiencing long COVID and don't want the risk of reinfection. Um, but it just feels like you know that kind of sense of isolation and the fear of risk, the fear of going to crowded spaces as well feels more isolating with a dose of you know the kind of I guess what we might say is the cultural gaslighting of everyone saying we're post-covid it's over it's not in the news as much and um, that sense that I guess you know we were all really and I think this is what we're going to talk about in the episode but you know that it was the number one topic for so long and, you know, me and Meg John did shows about it. You know, it was, it was something in shows that we talked about a lot. And then suddenly, well, or not so suddenly, maybe we'll talk about that. But um, we're not talking about it so much anymore. So that's what we wanted to do. So um, we're going to, I guess, it's going to be a bit of a freeform kind of conversation. I think we're going to start talking about ourselves and then get to some of the politics of it. Um, Dave and I are both very politically minded. Uh, I think, you know... We are, you could say that we are on the left wing. Yes, <laughs> I think that's fair it, that's, to say. <laughs> as is this podcast. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, so, but how we're going to get started is we thought that it might just be useful for us to talk about how we've approached post-lockdowns, a little bit of our own kind of idea of how we've kind of navigated this, in order just to kind of, you know, just for a couple, few minutes, just in order that it's like, let's normalise talking about covid in this way because you know if we don't do that and if we all pretend as individuals that it's all gone and we're not normalizing these conversations about how we've managed this you know really difficult thing um then we don't talk about it and we do feel more isolated and we don't open up possibilities for um for what it might be like to have covid in our lives and to move forward so Dave, why don't you kick us off? Like, tell us about your kind of post. We're, and we're not so we're not saying post COVID journey. We need to hopefully we are post lockdown in the in the UK or yeah um, yeah. I mean, probably and 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 probably that is the right post restrictions. Yeah, yeah. probably that is the right call now. Whether it was mm. ever the right call, like th- there are so many questions to ask around all of how the government responded to covid really um which is the crucial thing like i i feel like so much focus gets given to us the public um and often without focus being on like decisions that the government made and how they impact and influence the public um and that's not just decisions as well that's rhetoric and 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 polemics and all of the stuff around everything uh that has been going on um yeah. and i'd definitely like to talk about that later i think yeah. there is a sense that it, i think we need to talk about consent manufacturing right i think that is something we need to talk about but yes. again let's Let's leave that to the leave the leave the politics to the end. And Absolutely. Then we'll so go out on a bang. In terms of the personal, <laughs> which is of course still political, but in terms of my personal experience, um, 
I mean, yeah, I I guess I found out or was aware of COVID a little bit earlier than some of my friends and family and the people in the world. Like I was, I, I read political stuff and I keep pretty well informed. And so I knew it was coming a little mm. bit before others did. And it was quite terrifying, I remember, because in the couple of weeks before the first lockdown, I was actually traveling all around the country interviewing people for a podcast about my dad. And so I was very worried at that time whether I would be able to uh, do all of those recordings, which were, you know, recordings I was being funded to do and so if I didn't get things out to a to a schedule and all of those sorts of things then that would impact me financially and in in other ways and so I was very scared um I was already socially distancing but I hadn't masks had not come up for me at that point and I actually remember being in Liverpool where I was going to interview someone listening to uh what was then the Meg John and Justin podcast mm. and 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 being very kind of reassured by the way that you both were talking about mm. this impending kind of danger, um, which was I felt like very good because it wasn't. It was it was pragmatic. It was realistic. Mm. It was talking about what we can do, and mm. I think even back then that didn't seem to be happening at all. Really, people mm. weren't talking about harm reduction. Right, that's my yeah. one of my big political kind of slogans point of views things I go back to and I didn't feel like there was much kind of consideration of harm reduction it was all we can stop harm completely or we have to put up with harm in its com completeness there was no kind of like third way middle ground often I'm suspicious of things like third way or middle ground but uh, but I guess in the pandemic terms you could call me a centrist um but not in very many other places so i was very scared i remember feeling a little bit like indiana jones rolling under the kind of sliding door that's coming down and i just escaped like with my recordings before the lockdown happened right. and then like i'm calling it a lockdown but i would also like to say i don't think that the uk ever had what I would actually call a lockdown. Um, we had a lot of rhetoric around lockdowns. We, many of us believed we were locking ourselves down and, and felt betrayed, I think. Many people felt betrayed after completely locking themselves down to discover that others hadn't for whatever reasons, many reasonable reasons and many reasons that were non-consensual to them like lots of people didn't lock down because they couldn't financially yeah. or economically like that like, doesn't mean the same thing but uh like the government said we could all lock down but many people couldn't mm. and it's always important to remember that in those early days we were all getting deliveries from people who were essential workers who couldn't lock down um and so their experience of the pandemic was so different from ours um but yeah my my first kind of bit of the pandemic I, and the and the lockdown number 1 I kind of enjoyed in a weird way mm. I already kind of was quite isolated I, I lived without friends around me in an area that I hadn't managed to make friends so I finally had an excuse uh to to, to be antisocial I was editing a podcast about my dad and so it was useful to me to be cut off from the world completely and mm. that was about him having dementia and death and stuff like that so in a way it was big enough topics to quite distract me and I think mm. if I had had anything if I was making a, a jolly humorous uh, entertaining podcast which i i can do on occasion honestly mm. um <laughs> you know i i don't think i would have been able to be distracted but anyway like my personal boundaries uh were quite tight um tighter than my partner who lives in the same house as me uh tighter than my family and an ex and her family and extended family and and uh a lot of that was often kind of explained by other people as being in relation to, I mean, I, I have an official diagnosis of uh, generalised anxiety disorder. So a lot of people saw what I was doing as anxiety rather than as pragmatic sense. Um, and I felt a little bit 
upset by that because I feel like I kind of know what anxiety is. I experience it. I'm not always objective. Obviously, sometimes I don't realise it's anxiety in the moment. But often, looking back, I can very easily tell. And I actually wasn't very anxious. I felt I was quite right. safe. I A was... friend of mine who was who usually is anxious was did yeah, had the same experience. Uh, she was saying uh, she said to me, um, "Yeah, it." The thing with anxiety is that it, my brain is constantly trying to figure out what's wrong. But when there is, when there is something to worry about, I'm not anxious. Yeah, exactly. I knew what was wrong. I knew what to worry about. And for once, I had some rules. I mean, whether those rules, you know, are some of those rules maybe over time should have been challenged or may have been wrong. But but initially, you no, know, I was reading the the, the the scientists that were advocating much more strictly than the government was uh you know independent sage i paid a lot of attention to and even people kind of more radical uh, than independent sage kind of more left-wing commentators scientists who were also thinking about injustice and uh and the economic disparity that, mm. that meant that we weren't always experiencing the same pandemic it became really clear to me in those early days as well just how it, that felt like a kind of cultural gaslighting as well, that people were talking about the universal experience of those of us in lockdown. And it seemed very clear that that was not universal. In fact, people I was talking to on Zoom or whatever who were in theory doing the same things as me were having completely different experiences of those things. Um, and that kind of like was like as much as like, yeah, like, there were people who were happier. There were people who were sadder. There were there were parents who were suddenly spending quality time with their children and they hadn't been able to, and they were really liberated by that. And then there were parents who were working from home with their children who couldn't spend quality time with them. And like it was much more stressful because they had kids and they weren't uh, experiencing what some of the single people I knew in my life were experiencing. But at the same time, there was incredible loneliness and isolation for the single people people in my life that weren't being expect, experienced by partnered people or people mm. who had flatmates or or whatever and then there were people yeah. people who had flatmates or family members who were falling out with each other and hating each other and forced to go back to family homes and all sorts of things that that are really traumatic potentially for lots of people particularly mm. queer people or yeah. like people who have very fractious relationships with their family. I was very glad that I was not forced to go back to, uh, to to spend time with my family. But at the same time, I actually think my family, which is quite a complicated and often tense battleground uh, in my life, um, was actually kind of got closer during bits of the pandemic. We were doing, you know, weekly Zooms. We were connect, and I, I found I, f I found Zoom to be a brilliant space mm. to interact with my family on because yeah. you know face to face there's a lot more arguments like actually not everyone can hear things mm. sometimes that's great in a family environment you, you know yeah. if someone misses a joke that someone's made about somebody else that's actually what you sometimes want to get on with your with on with your parents you know in a weird yeah. way I mean interestingly I'm uh I think it's we this is important because I think that it's we this the the uniqueness of uh, of lockdown and, and restrictions I think is important because there is the sense of um, we don't also we don't want to we don't want to reify it because it was um, it was the thing to do to keep us safe but it also put other people in much more uh, much more risk of harm generally I think that's a really interesting point one of those things about um, I mean. Uh, and that the, there were potential benefits and positives to, um, yeah. You know, but also, I kind of I'm kind of talking in a very binary way. But in this kind of uh, in the kind of the rhizome or the the kind of the, the complex flow of things going on, there were good, bad, different, new, abling, disabling uh, things happening all of the time. And so, actually, I think that might be a good thing to come back to at some point, which is that that rhizome is still existing. It's just that there is less attention paid to the subject matter. Yeah. Um, in terms of how you manage the, in the, in the kind of when, whenever the, like the post restrictions yeah. were happening for you, Dave, like what, what, how were you, how did you start to come out of that and where, and where, tell, and tell us about where you've got to now with how you're managing 
Yeah. COVID well, somewhere stress. within the first lockdown, I think, I kind of realised I needed to leave the house. Yeah. Uh, that was in- essential for my physical and mental health. Um, I left the house at that time always with a mask, even in the streets and and all of that. And I I think that that then I started experiencing. So there was like initially as a gender non-conforming person, uh, I actually found it quite liberating again, like going out in the streets, there being a little bit less people. They were less interested in you. You could wear a mask. So they weren't even sure that you were gender non-conforming. Maybe it was kind of... um, sort of gender euphoria at times and and i i am used to being kind of glared out on the street so initially it was quite quite liberating in its own way but uh, but but then quite quickly there became a new norm which was judgment of mask wearing mm. uh that meant that i was then kind of singled out both in being gender non-conforming and being a mask wearer so there was suddenly Mm. this new thing that could get you grief on the street be that Mm. harassment or just judgment um Mm. i'm I'm never sure which i don't like the most i I, Mm. I guess it's like overt and uh and you know non-overt racism like some people prefer one some people prefer the other but they Mm. both suck um and so yeah like so there was that there was this kind of it very quickly became quite clear to me it was about consent as well like Mm. I remember the first time like that my partner's parent her mom came to stay with us um was still a time when we were being advised to wash our hands all the time although I think that is maybe one of the one of the rules that maybe we can question now we've got the full science around it but then that wasn't known and I kind of was very aware that when she came round, like there was this very awkward like you know hour where she hadn't washed her hands and then in the end I had to say you know could you please wash your hands and she did not like that and uh, I think we've Mm -hmm. we've worked through that as people and there are you know that's that's been smoothed over but there was suddenly a a tension in a a relationship that had not had a tension Mm. and she felt very judged and I felt very judged because Mm. for me it was a matter of you coming to someone's house and they want you to take their shoes off and it doesn't matter if you think that's a good idea or not it's somebody else's house that's their rule and you and you adhere to it and that's kind of what consent one of the kinds of ways we can think about this in terms of consent you know like Mm. you, you can't go into someone's house who likes shoes off without taking your shoes off um without being non-consensual without ignoring somebody else's agency feelings mm. preferences and safety you know like mm. potentially at that time she could have been putting us at more risk turns out she wasn't i don't think but mm. that wasn't that that doesn't really matter it's not really always about what is actually dangerous mm. feelings anxieties to, to 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 paint myself with the brush everyone else was painting me with um you know these things matter we should respect these things um and be sensitive and so that was a challenging moment to sort of someone i agree with politically agree with in so many other ways um mm. realizing that realizing that people people who on paper you've never had a division with suddenly mm. you have a division with and and that happened in lots of different spaces actually that was one of my mm. my main feelings as we opened up as we came out of lockdown was suddenly feeling more alone even more disjointed from other people because as someone on the left it's you can mm. often feel very alone in your politics and then if you suddenly find out that you disagree with people on the left as well then mm. you really don't know where to turn um yeah. And so there was that element. There was like, you know, physical safety. I mean, I am very lucky. I have never so far uh, had COVID. Um, that's super rare. I understand mm. that's rare. It's it's partly because I'm a freelancer and I don't have any friends in the local area that has allowed me to achieve that. It's partly I've got all my vaccines and I've been lucky enough with my most recent vaccine to get that before my age mates because I'm going to be on immunosuppressant drugs in the new year and so that meant I got to have like an extra covid jab and a flu jab and all of that but I've also been super aware like my you know someone who was my boss 
from one of my podcasts got long COVID and now is no longer my boss because she can't work um, mm. in the same way. Like I, my dad was in literally a care home during the lockdowns um, mm. and he died um, possibly as partly as a result of the, of the second lockdown because the care home he was in uh, went bust and he had to change care homes and he died oh, after the first week of the new, of the new care home. Now, my, interestingly, my sister feels there's a big taboo. Like she won't say that was partially related to COVID. For her to say it was COVID related is almost to kind of put a taboo over the family for a death. You know, she wants there to be none of that, none of that memory. None of, she doesn't want the pandemic to come up when we talk about his death. And I think that that's quite symbolic of how we, a lot of people now feel about the pandemic. You know, you can't talk about it without people rolling their eyes often or acting like it's completely over and what are you doing or talking about it like it didn't happen, like they've kind of memory hold their pasts. And so I found that very challenging going out into the world. I mean, now I wear a lot less masks. Um, I do still wash my hands because I washed my hands before the pandemic. Um, but I, I don't think that the washing hands has anything to do with particularly with the safety well not pan not covid related safety of mm. others it does help in other uh, kinds of ways that you can give people illnesses um but i wear a mask much less I, but i wear it always on public transport and mm. still get glared at and i'm the only one very frequently on public transport and mm. i'm super aware that, that if i'm the only one that means there's some people on that train or that bus who want to be wearing it but yeah. aren't able to because of the social stigma. And when yeah. I look at me and my partner, I'd say that's the main difference. She mm. is more affected by the social accept what is what is socially acceptable in a group. So she mm. is more likely to remove her mask because she feels judged than I am. Um, and so kind of we both pretty much have the same understanding of the science, the same opinion about, you know, harm reduction, but also you can't live in a risk free world. Um, but she's a bit less safe than me or mm. like you could call it less safe because of social expectation. And if we lived in a world that made her feel OK to wear a mask, she would wear it more often. And certainly even that, that said, there are some situations I've removed a mask because of social pressures um, mm. and not wanting to upset people. And mm. that's, you know, in many ways terrible because I know that like your person, the person who wrote into mm. you, there are people who feel unable to do social mm. interaction because no one's wearing a mask. Um, mm. And so it, it, it hurts people whatever you do in a certain way. Someone's mm. going to judge you whatever you do and you kind of have to make what decisions are best from your perspective evaluating all of the different risks and hopefully taking into account the other human beings that you're going to be with so mm. again I, I don't understand anyone who won't wear a mask to spend time with someone who wants them to you know yeah. I like yeah. people I like as, as, as much as sometimes I hate people I, I mm. do like people and to to spend time with them is a gift um, and I'm very happy to take a little bit of discomfort I mean and I don't even particularly find masks discomforting but I understand no. people do and that's mm. true and people just like people have like sensory problems with lots of things some people have mm. a sensory problem with that mask and that is mm. also a reasonable thing to take a, a take on board mm. but i think where where it stops being reasonable is when it gets very linked to you know ideological perspectives mm. around anti-vaxxing or or masking kind of taking away fundamental human humanity from our children or whatever mm. those kind of calls to kind of um yeah to kind of uh i guess it it it, it has been very much a kind of yeah, like, oh, I can't remember the word. It's ridiculous that I can't remember the word for it. Um, when, l l like we're having with trans people, uh, like a, uh, what's, what's, like a, oh, there's a word for it. Anyway, I've, I'm, I'm forgetting the word, but like socially people are um, kind of, yeah, I can't remember the word. I'm, I'm going to stop trying to remember the word, and I'm sure it will come back to me as soon but as in, we stop doing this. But yeah. But what, what, what is it that they're trying to do? What's like it's what's like the... when when 
like it's like calls to children being at risk uh, right. and uh, kind of ideas that you're like like social. Oh, there was I nearly had it then. Um, but yeah, we t- I, right. I, it's a phrase I use all the time, which is okay. why it's amazing that I've forgotten it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, these things happen. Well, I think that was really... Um... Social contagion. Oh, yeah, That's yeah, yeah. That's what I'm trying to say, yeah. yeah. Like, that you are the contagion if you have the mask. That you are the pandemic if you are taking precautions against the pandemic. And, like, right. not knowing, though, like, they, if, if you can't see it, it doesn't exist. Yeah. And that's interesting because, you know, that is the case, that, that you can't see the airborne COVID virus, but it yeah. does exist, you know. A hundred percent. I think that there is... So I think we're, we're kind of getting on to the point where we can start to talk about um, society <laughs> and, and, yeah, because but because we've all had this very unique experience of going into the first set of restrictions and coming out of all of the restrictions we have at the moment. Um, I think that there are some things there are some things that I miss. There are there there are certain kinds of um, visible codes of etiquette that told me in a kind of in a in a positive affirming way where in the and also in a way that you can see it that when people were wearing ma- a mask around me. Uh, that that told me that they were looking after me and themselves, and it told me that we lived in this kind of um, that we lived in this deeply interconnected world where my health is directly affected by the health of complete strangers in my local supermarket on the bus, you know wherever. Now that that has gone, mm-hmm. social distancing, mask wearing. There is. It's easy to make the assumption that people no longer think that. So it's easy to make the assumption, which is to go to the kind of uh, to talk about you know Hobbes and to talk about how you know the basic the, the basic assumption of humankind is that we are all uh, um, greedy, uh, you know, sinful, um, self-absorbed, self-interested, and we need. Control, and that's why we need controlling. That's what Hobbes wrote about in the Leviathan. We need this big monster, sea monster, to control us. And actually, I don't believe in that. I Rutger Bregman's really excellent book that I was reading um, at the beginning of uh, COVID that I talked about on one of the shows that I did with Meg John. Um, we are all cooperative. We do want to cooperate with each other. It's just how us, our humans, are organised and are managed and are coerced. And that is where we're talking about culture and society and politics. There was a real opportunity to do, and the, the government won't do this anymore because uh, we live in Tory Britain where sensible things can't happen anymore that might cost money. But basically, there was a really, really amazing opportunity to do some public health work to say, look, okay, we are going to stop making it a legal requirement for you to wear masks in various places. But here's the science. This will help you not get colds. It'll help you not get flu, as well as other, you know, other viruses, other infections, um, as well as reducing the possibility of you and everyone else getting COVID. So how about we try and take this up as a culture? So um, in various places in, um, in Asia, in East Asia, it is a norm if you've got a sniffle that you wear a mask. And so, to my when I do wear a mask on the, I don't I don't often wear a mask anymore. I it would be on on public transport if I was feeling a bit, you know, feeling a bit unsure. What I say to myself is, if anyone asks me why are you wearing a mask, would I? My mantra is, well, I think I might have it, and I don't know, so I don't want other people to get it. That's like my that would be a thing that I said if anyone questioned me. No one does, partly because I'm six foot three and a bloke, and you know, non you know. I have this, you know, huge amount of like uh, embodied like clout uh, in society that is unfairly distributed towards me that other people don't have. But there was a real opportunity to do that public health work, and they didn't. Mm. And so what we are left with now is this kind of like is this kind of, but also there was an opportunity to do some work about 
not just public health work in terms of uh, mask wearing, but pu- proper public health work about, okay, well, we're all, we've all been through some shit and we're still going through some shit. Yeah. And life's really hard and life has been hard. And many of us have mourned people or been un- unable to mourn people. Let's take a moment. Like, why? I mean, you know, if I ran the UK, if I was Prime Minister, that 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 has never been part of the public conversation. A part of, I mean, politically, there are we are living in an omni crisis. Yeah. <laughs> there's no space to do anything. But a politically good and useful thing would be to have to create resources, um, messaging, um, TV ads, booklets. Um, but you know, even relatively low cost things that might not necessarily have to you know clog up mental health service provision which is you know obviously needs massively investing in that as a massive public health crisis and why so many people aren't in work at the moment not that everyone should be in work anyway uh work isn't, isn't necessarily in and of itself a good thing but anyway um but there was an opportunity and they didn't take it and so what we're left with are the questioner sending us a question like this and you and I doing a podcast about it and it's like that barely anyone else seems to be talking yeah. about it um, yeah. it's really it's it's and that is the thing that kind of makes me sad and again but it is it's not sad at I'm not sad at individuals not wearing a mask just because they're not wearing a mask doesn't think that they don't think I'm living in a deeply interconnected world where yeah. my health is you know do you know what I mean? So that's it. I think there's that. Some of that is going on. I think. I mean, it felt like, in some ways, at some points, it felt like a a, a very optimistic moment that we yeah. could learn from this in so many directions that are so important for our current circumstances, human beings living in the modern world. Like, you know, we've got climate crisis all around us. There are so many things we can't see that we need to have solidarity around and collectively change our behaviours in order to improve everybody's circumstance. And so, you know, in the early days of everything, I was really excited. You know, there was lots of very utopian, optimistic articles written by left-leaning people and climate like activists and stuff like that that were directing us in the right directions. Mutual aid became something that people used that word. I mean, I'm an anarchist. I knew about mutual aid, but but I didn't, it wasn't common in people's kind of discussions. And that was very exciting. But very quickly, those those kind of mutual aid groups that kind of got developed became over a short space of time, you know, kind of neighborhood watch complaining about your neighbors groups and, and all of the initial kind of exciting possibility of people finding radical new ways to to form community was gone and there was also those kind of like a change in working like work environments working from home suddenly people were finding all of this extra time that they'd been losing to commuting was suddenly in their lives and 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 there was also kind of exciting things like people we all suddenly really uh valued the arts in a way that we hadn't necessarily uh, kind of been doing before because suddenly they were the things that were kind of it felt like were keeping us alive like tv box sets weren't just a distraction from our alienation under capitalism they were like the thing that was giving us the nourishment the connection with others the the ideas of the outside world and and what that could be when we were trapped inside our homes or i say all of these universalizing comments should also be taken with a grain of salt because of course we weren't all trapped inside our homes we weren't all having those amazing experiences of of hope but those of us that did kind of by this stage of sort of the the shine's gone off the hope we might still be able to say this is what we should have done or this is what the government should have done or this is the possibilities that we could still wrestle back if we got a different government but it is is very hard to um to to keep the those those initial moments of hope that we had kind mm. of alive in that way. Um, yeah. I, th- I think I do. Yeah. I've been thinking about that too. And I do. Um, I think it's important to try and retain some of it and to, and to yes. look for it and to look for exceptions. Um, it's very, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's very, it feels quite glib 
but also quite an easy, true thing to say, which is to say, oh, we've we've been through all of this, and look where we are now. We've learnt we've learnt fuck all. Like we we haven't learned a thing, and I don't think that's actually true. No, I agree. Um, because um, you know, workplaces uh, are now fully embracing hybrid working. Okay, some workplaces are embracing hybrid working, working from home. Uh, some pay rises have happened right. uh, in in some sectors. Zoom um, is being used as an accessibility feature to live events, even as the live events have started back up again. More people yeah. can access them. Same with academic events. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's particularly good. Um, uh, I found running training courses, actually. I can actually run them. I thought I'd never be able to run the kind of training courses I run on Zoom. Turns out you can, actually, really yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I should have done that earlier. (laughs) Um, So I think it's just important to also be like to do that small thing of paying attention to some of these things that we still have. But also within that as well to say that we're this that the there might still be a possibility of learning from COVID that we have this massive COVID inquiry underway. It's not going to report before the next election, but it's underway. we don't. We don't see what learning is going on. We don't see. We might not see small acts of. You know, let's see the mask as um, a symbol, where even if we're not seeing a mask now, that doesn't necessarily always mean that people don't care about COVID. Yeah. Uh, and so and so we might not see it, but there is this thing that you were kind of that you were talking about, and that we've got in our notes is you know that this idea of trying to like memory hole the pandemic perhaps what's happening is um what we mean by that is throwing it down the memory hole okay that's gone we've we've done that now and i think that there is probably like a psychodynamic yeah it's a trauma response you could say i think yeah maybe it is like you're right maybe it is like a flight uh or freeze um, and I think a similar thing happened with the Spanish flu, you know, around right. the, the wars, like the, the, around the First World War. We hit, we, we've kind of, we do talk about the First World War, although I think there's some argument you can say that we memory hold a lot of stuff to yeah. do with both of the World Wars and uh, constantly, yes. like many different moments in history, we, we, we very quickly try to forget. This is not the yeah. first time this has happened. This is not a, a COVID kind of quality of society. We do this a lot. But I, I, we sort of did it with the Spanish flu more effectively than we did with the war. We remember the war. We don't really remember the flu as much. And I think it was a similar kind of experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, yeah, survivors don't want to think about it. They don't mm-hmm. want to necessarily worry about it in their future. Mm-hmm. And that's very similar to the interpersonal experiences that many of us will have had with traumatic experiences where we mm-hmm. just... Yeah, like we don't want to think about it, but then when we go to therapy, it turns out, or or whatever way that you address your traumas, uh, other other options are available than therapy. But when 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 one addresses their traumas, they realise, oh, actually, it was really important to remember it and recontextualize it, mm. to recontextualize it and re-understand it from a position of not trauma. Uh, to be able to look back at it. And I think maybe that's where we might get to with COVID, that we can we can look back at what we have currently memory hold and, you know, without the the stress of the the, the danger all around us, we can we can learn from it and, mm. and maybe put in place some of these yeah, some of these things we've been talking about, mutual aid group or mm. groups or like solidarity between groups and and, and and approaches to public health that are not that are not criminalizing like i think the big mistake of the government was to make covid restrictions restrictions and laws um and in fact a more consensual co-written with the public Mm. like understanding that harm reduction is not an it's not it's not it's you know you you can't you can't win it it is not a winnable thing. There's no right and wrong. You have to make different judgments in different circumstances. And I think if the if the public had been treated with the respect, mm-hmm. then they would have given 
that kind of response. They would have stepped up to it. They did. Initially, they did. Before mm. the laws came in, I think that was when the public were at our most consensual as a group, mm. our most solidarity giving as a group, mm. our most understanding of each other and our different circumstances as a group. And then once it became legal, it wasn't just an excuse for the police to, you know, arrest people. Uh, people of colour and uh, anybody else that's out on the streets that they don't like, which definitely happened. And those laws were definitely misused. Mm -hmm. But even if they'd been used correctly... The fact that they were laws, the fact that they they, they criminalised something as impossible to criminalise as a virus... Like it's it's not any of us. It's a virus. You know, you you can't criminalize a person who's got a virus inside them. The, the the real enemy, if there must be an enemy, is the virus, and that was a big problem too. We talked about it a lot it, as a war. Like mm. I'm just doing it now. I'm slipping into it, and it and it isn't a war. That's not how viruses are. Mm. And to see it as a war, and to to have our images of it be kind of you know military veterans, and uh, you know mm. us all clapping and showing our our strength as a nation, and making it very kind of not just a war, but a, a nationalistic war, like it's mm. connected to Britain and and keep calm and carry on, which was a slogan that wasn't used in the Second World no, War. It was not. It's a Retro slogan. Um, and so, you know, it was very based around that. And I actually, I, I did talk to somebody who kind of, um, for that show about my dad, um, I, I, I interviewed someone who, who does a lot about like the kind of, interesting time before the second world war before we went into it when chamberlain didn't want to go to war and there was Mm. lots of kind of interesting rhetoric going on around that time and Mm. i I think it's a it's it's a similar kind of it's a similar kind of process where this kind of jingoistic like making ourselves into the good guys versus the bad guy virus and all of that was a big part of the mistake of of, of why it's hard to look at it properly because we we didn't use the right metaphors for it we didn't conceptualize it in the right way although i don't want to say the right way because that's a kind of judgmental thing but like in not a helpful way not in no, that's really ways. that's really interesting when so when we're evoking so when we're invoking this idea of we've defeated the virus then that also sends with it a lot of um, other messages which are, well, that's done then, that's that then kind of thing. And it is politically useful for the Tories to mm-hmm. say, um, well, we've defeated the virus, that's that, you know, to for Boris Johnson to talk about, you know, the how effective the vaccine response was, but not to talk about, you know, eat out to help out, how late we were to lockdowns, the... the, the, the care home scandal yes um and how many uh, excess deaths were caused by just um mismanagement but also the nhs already at a crisis point before covid um anyway um yeah i mean so- the only thing the government can hold up to say that they've done anything good in their entirety of existence is the covid response but when you really pick it apart that's not worth holding up. They didn't no. do a good COVID response no. in so many different ways. And I, I think the phrase that comes to mind when thinking about the care home stuff, the political phrase that comes to my mind is necropolitics. Mm. Um, and that's like a, a theory around the way that kind of neoliberal capitalism exists on death on the death of others in other parts of the world, mm-hmm. uh, exists on making death not matter, kind of monetizing the idea of death, like mm-hmm. casualties, not human beings not mattering, and everything mm-hmm. kind of being based on on that, on death. On, on, and it kind of, it's kind of what, you know, fascism does of like reducing people to numbers and killing them. Um, it, you know, and that is is what you can see playing out in the politics of the pandemic response in in the UK and I don't say that lightly or like you know jolly like I don't think that that you know necropolitics isn't isn't is never a good thing anyone using that term um and it's people of color who thought you know who used that term who who kind of spearheaded that use of that term um no one's saying it's good that this mm. is that we live in necropolitics um yeah. and I'm not saying it lightly I, I, I'm just being realistic, sadly, that, 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 that capitalism exists, you know, because of human death as well as human labour. Yeah. And linked to that as well is the is the, that it was um, 
to use to borrow the phrase from your notes here, Dave, that is a mass disabling event that um, that continues, uh, and it is to link to um, our you know, our our in, our value as an individual is linked to how much value we can create for our bosses and employers in uh, in capitalism uh, and. In particular, the kind of uh, the uh, the ever individualized form of neoliberal. We've got an episode on this, dear listener, about neoliberalism. Go back, uh, <laughs> listen to our episode about neoliberalism and sexual relationships if you want to find out more about neoliberalism. But it's basically the idea of that that we are that the common sense idea of um, being a human in uh, in Britain and in the US certainly is that we are individual units competing against other units for. Um, scarce uh, resources and also uh, like uh, economic clout um, but it's a mass disabling event and it's been disabling both uh, physically for people with long COVID for folk who are undergoing uh, who are immunosuppressed, immunosuppressed uh, for various treatments they might be uh, experiencing but also uh, in terms of mental health we are going the mental health crisis we already had has been massively exacerbated and that is massively um it's it's disabled a lot more people and it's important that we're talking about it in this way that um decisions that have been made uh by governments have disabled more and more and more people yeah. and disabling people is to make people invisible is to make people not count as much you know it is the it is to take away their it, it is to take away their the their potential capacities to be human that's what disabledism is that's what uh, that's what we do when we disable people again that is that is that is the that's what's happening at a structural level uh disabled folk uh, people who were disabled before, uh, but people disabled by society before COVID, um, uh, have uh, always found you know micro political ways of um, reacting against uh, ableist oppression. Um, there are possibilities for this now too. So we don't want to fix folk who are disabled. Fix. We don't want to fix the the social location to uh, uh, of um, people who are disabled to say well. Um, you know, they can't. You know, they slash we can't do can't do certain things, and therefore we should forget them. That's not that's uh, um, that's something that has been successfully resisted. But we have to also res- understand that we have to change society in this way, um, yeah. and to change and to fundamentally change. You know, what we measure as being uh, a good society, and this is why the whole thing is kind of linked. Is that you know, looking at you know growth and gdp and um what makes someone uh, be able to make a contribution to society when we look at all of the people who are contributing to society um it was caregivers care and care receivers and right. uh people doing the you know uh doctors nurses uh you know uh people delivering us food people making us food they were all of the things that were uh, that were valuable, and again, look at you know they're, they're all folk now who quite rightly going on strike, and uh, yeah, hundred percent support. Exactly, they weren't valued. Like my my little sister was working in a, a care home for uh, adults with disabilities and, and learning disabilities during the pandemic, um, but she has quit and is now much happier as as a waiter, a waiter, you know, working, you know, in similarly low paid, mm. but without all the responsibilities of the entirety of society yeah. aimed at her head. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's, yeah, there's a lot to be said for that, and for, 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 for looking at why the people we said were our essential workers have been paid so badly, treated so badly, that the clapping rang so hollow yeah. for so many people in the, the NHS because the NHS was already gutted before COVID started, yeah. was gut, gutted even more during COVID and now is very, very 
you know, very much struggling. Our, our, our public service that we are so proud in the UK of that the Tories like to use as a way of saying we're we're specially you know Britain is special has been destroyed mostly by the Tories but not only by the Tories um and so it's no longer even in existence like it's it's a flag that's being held up but there's nothing behind that flag at this point apart from badly paid workers struggling in very unsafe environments to do their best for people um and and that's the thing like there are some I wouldn't say that like I wouldn't say like it's not it's like if you're bullied like you don't you don't get good things from being bullied but there are things that we can take from the bad experiences that we've had and maybe cleave towards something positive mm. and I think like people who didn't know what it was like to be disabled mm. now do mm. um and that is quite radical that potentially mm. means there's a lot more solidarity between people that wasn't there before. I mean, I know a lot of disabled people were also very annoyed, quite understandably, by suddenly seeing all of these abled people um, moaning about things that they'd already been moaning about for years and no one had ever listened to them. So it's not... It's not equal and clear cut, but mm. but but people understand that. People understand what it is like to, to be kind of isolated. Those sorts of feelings that maybe they, that that people didn't. And there is a way you can see that as as you were saying as disability as well. Anyway, but mm. but 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 regardless, there are lots of different kinds of people that suddenly we have an in insight into. Mm. Um, and so there is something potentially positive about that. And I also think that class has been clarified for people. People who maybe wouldn't have seen themselves as working class have been so have been, you know, essential workers and suddenly realized where their class interests lie. Um and you know, there is there are many ways of looking at class as an anarchist. I mean, I, I'm not just an anarchist. There's lots of different words you can use about me. But but one of the ways that anarchists sometimes think about classes, you've got like workers and bosses, and those are the two classes. Mm. And so in that regard, lots of middle class people who we would call middle class have suddenly seen which side of that line they're yeah. on. And they maybe will have more solidarity and more urge to change society. Mm. Um, there is those possibilities within all of this um, stuff. Yeah. And I think those possibilities are still existing as well. Like the 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 there's a certain amount of concept manufacturing about this, which is uh, it's Chom- Noam Chomsky who came up with that, wasn't it? Uh, that was uh, Noam Chomsky's I think, book. I think so. Um, and I've, <laughs> I've been kind of learning about um, consent in the in the in this way and this kind of political consent from the book Hegemony now by Jeremy Gilbert and Alex Williams, which is uh, excellent. And it is basically that. There is not a lot of active consent when it comes to our participation in society, our democratic participation in society. And pa- quite frankly, there was passive consent in the uh, in in the years uh, for for neoliberalisation in the years leading up to the financial crash, because cheap credit meant that we were able, to, even though we weren't being paid very well, we were able to access cheaper goods, cheaper credit. Uh, and people with mortgages were able to have um, to borrow a lot more money. That's all now come to an end. But there is the, so that's just to explain how passive consent happened. People were actively choosing neoliberalism. It was something that they got that they were gratefully accepting a, a compensation for something for a certain set of uh, uh, for sacrificing a certain set of uh, democratic uh, rights and political rights. And to an extent, there is definitely a lot of p- passive consent uh, and a- an actual coercion going on in terms of how we are now meant to see, how we are led to see how we are supposed to deal with COVID. But there are also resistances to it. And just our conversation about this now is a resistance to that. The The questioner is, you know, resisting that. Anyone who is you know having conversations about this is possibly kind of resisting it but in addition to that there has also been a whole bunch of other crises so covid is still very much existing within this kind of um the the other crises that are all that are all currently happening we were coming we we the economy was um 
uh, inflation was really struggling uh, in part linked to COVID was, was really was getting high in part linked to COVID then Ukraine the, the war in Ukraine happened uh, that exacerbated the COVID crisis and staffing shortages exacerbate that um, yeah so a lot of things are uh, a lot of things have exacerbated COVID which means that we're talking less about COVID but it's a part of this kind of other kind of um set of things that are going on which means on a certain kind of like uh, on a political level in terms of what you would see and hear on the news that's why we're not hearing about it so much anymore but we might do at some other point um and i think we i think it's probable that we will but i can understand why at the moment it feels like oh it's been completely forgotten about yeah i mean and it's in the interest of the powerful to not uh, talk yeah. about it uh and so that doesn't just go for the government, that goes for the media that basically make their living from regurgitating the party lines of the government yeah. and not challenging the government. Um, and so that's another reason it can feel like you're so alone is because there isn't as much independent media as we'd love mm. there to be. And the, 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 and the independent media that is there finds it much harder to break through and to get into your eardrums and you know it you know the fact that you're listening to to Justin's show means you're already getting at least some countercultural voices in your ears and that that you you know you're not alone in that regard I think that's 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 very important element I and I, and I think you know when you talk about all these different interlocking crises that we're going through mm. th there's an interesting thing with that as well in that the, in those early days of covid what one of the things that we 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 were we that gave us hope was that people stopped using their cars as much yeah. there were actually environmental gains um you know people there was lots of those kind of people saying you know i went out of my house and there was animals and the, you know the beauty yeah. of nature was all around me and they hadn't really been able to see that before um and people going out for walks actually i think has happened mm. because we, it was all we could do at certain points mm. people's relationship to their local area their natural environments around them i mean i should say cities are natural environments too i'm not i'm not making a claim for for nature being kind of outside of human existence but mm. but 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 to connect with these things that maybe our lives our fractured fragmented lives have not allowed us to you know there's there's another hope within that i think mm. um and i mean i did some stuff um for a, a podcast called farmer armor i edited a, a, an episode of their series which was called um who feeds us which was about the people who were trying to keep food going you know during the the pandemic and lots of those were mutual aid mm. um, and I did I spoke to three very different um, like bread makers in different parts of the world or like one like well, in different parts of the UK one was in like rural uh, Scotland and she, she had suddenly like connected with the community in this way of like making their bread and they people were coming and it was their only social interactions they were having that that day was getting bread from her and you know and I was speaking to someone in the middle of uh, in the middle of the city of Bristol who was getting you know bread made by the by the farmers in the surrounds of Bristol and that was connecting the, the rural and the city up and then I spoke to someone who was a miller at the Brixton windmill who was you know making flour that was going out to the local Caribbean uh, shops and, 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 and you know other places as well not just Caribbean places but like you know so there is there were these amazing things that started to happen but by the time I was interviewing them you know the narrative we wanted to tell on that show was of this hope but by the time I was interviewing them the hope had started to dwindle. The funding had dried up. The the, mm. the possibilities, the the things they'd already established that were working, and and sometimes feeding, you know, the like homeless people, like you know, mm -hmm. uh, unhoused people, I should mm -hmm. say, like were, were were suddenly getting fed. And you know, we saw that with the government. Sometimes they were being housed temporarily, yeah. and then that stopped. And yeah. what we can do is maybe put pressure on to bring those things back and to mm. remember what were great about them and learn from them. You know, it's, it's another the one of the multiple approaches we can take for climbing out of this this thing that we've all experienced in very different ways but we have for once all experienced um yeah. and so there's like a hope in that and uh, i think we can climb out of it better but we really do need to remove our government and maybe our media <laughs> to do so
A hundred, a hundred percent. That's um, that's such a great final point, and I think it's um, it kind of reminds me of something. It reminds me actually. It's there are some similarities between this and another the last uh, massive public health crisis we had, um, last pandemic we had, HIV/AIDS. Still have that. Um, I think it's just useful just to point out that um, that these that it is uh, it's a struggle that a virus is and the politics around a virus is uh, has the possibility of um, uh, struggle, and it was. And it was independent Sage who were keeping Sage on their toes. It was uh, well, it was Jeremy Corbyn uh, and John McDonnell who were saying we should have a furlough scheme. Mm-hmm. And a furlough scheme. It was you know that kind of we don't no longer have an, as good an opposition in our view. But anyway, um, but these but the so the the COVID bereavement families um, and their input into the. Um, into the uh, COVID inquiry uh, that is that is ongoing is really important. The wall of um, of COVID deaths on uh, on the on the South Bank in London and the various ways in which we remember it is really important. But it, it is that thing of we've experienced furlough. We know government can step in to make uh, to provide houses for the unhoused. We know that government can step in and um, and redirect a lot of resources. In ways that are that facilitate care and and health, um, so that genie's out of the bottle, and that's never going back in the bottle. So again, I think that the the current uh, struggle we have for for worker rights, uh, the you know nurses will say that you know people were banging their were banging their pots and pans, but they're not doing anything you know doing anything about uh, pay rises for us, and you know it's part it's still there, it's still part of the conversation, yeah. and it is this kind of if we see it as this kind of um, larger kind of frame, this kind of complex root system of things into which COVID is is now interwoven in ways that I don't think we ever are going to forget. I think sometimes discursively it's forgotten, like people yep. stop talking about, about it necessarily, but it's there in other ways, I think, is, is a, a useful way of framing it, I think. And long COVID itself is a patient-named disease it's yeah. a it's a it's a it's a patient name condition the right you know the, the the recognition of it was fought for by long covid sufferers and and you know there's there's lots of organizations out there that that did that there's also like long covid kids mm-hmm. that like like fought for kids to be recognized within that mm-hmm. um and so yeah that's that you know we can we do have power mm-hmm. collectively yeah. and we have we have had an impact yeah but and uh, and that is worth we'll keep going. noting. Yeah, yeah. keep going. Um, Press on. Yeah. Um, Dave, thank you so much for coming on to chat about this. Um, My pleasure. Uh, I really value your thinking about this, and um, and and uh, uh, yeah, I think you are really uh, such a great, interesting person to talk to about in the field of culture, sex relationships, and. Um, but do also plug your work. So um, have you got anything that you would really like our listeners to know about you and your work? Yeah, well, I, I, I'm definitely going to p- plug my work. But just before I do, um, I noted that you're very good yourself, Justin, at, at um, actually crediting the people that you're referring to. So I, whilst, well, you know, whilst we've been talking, I've kind of looked up uh, so I can do that a little bit better. So necropolitics was... Uh, a concept created by Achille Mbebe um, in uh, in his work on on the post colony, and I came across it first uh, for the feminist post colonialist um, scholar Flavia Zodden. I'm not doing myself any favours by picking some words that I should have looked up how to pronounce, but I, at least I have uh, at least given people a kind of direction to find those thinkers and, and look at those those people's work. And you can you can cut that if you don't we'll if, if them, I haven't done it very well. No, as well. I'll put you them can... in that we'll find it and put them in the show notes so uh, you've got things to go uh, 
pay attention to and uh, but have a but look things at. to find me on i mean um my my show about my dad that i guess i've mentioned a couple of times it's a it's a couple of years old it came out during the pandemic during lockdown one terrible time to release a podcast because nobody wanted to listen to a podcast about old people dying uh, mm. at that time there, mm. it was a great time to release other podcasts many podcasters did very well out of it me i went dark and it didn't work so well but um but down to sun the sea Memories of my dad is probably the show I'm most proudest of making. It's a kind of uh, very, hopefully moving, but also uplifting and positive. Lots of stuff about lefties and lefty left politics. My dad was very left wing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's lots of that stuff in there. Um, and uh, yeah, that's very pertinent to our conversation about COVID. There is a couple of episodes that cover sort of things to do with COVID. Um and then, yeah, unlike that, I'm shortly to be releasing on the 10th of January is the existing release date, but things can change. So don't be surprised if it does. But I'm going to be putting out a new podcast called The Pod Goblin's Hat, which I'm doing with my friend uh, Nina, who and we're kind of co-hosting it. We're looking at all of the Moomin books together. She's never read them. I'm a super fan. And uh, so we're reading them together. And giving our thoughts around them which to be fair a lot of the thoughts are quite lefty quite feminist quite kind of about consent and the kinds of things that the listeners to this show will enjoy so yeah that will be coming out in the new year and it's a much more positive probably my most positive and upbeat and jolly show that I've done so for people who like upbeat and jolly with a little sting of politics uh that's the place to go great that sounds really great um uh, I know a lot of Moomin fans, uh, and I'm like, right, okay. Uh, and so it sounds like your podcast might be a great introduction for me to try yes, and impress them. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's for non Moomin fans and Moomin fans alike, you right. know. And we'll we go through it and we give you the we give you a synopsis. So it's even it's even a show for people who like to um not read books but know what's in them. Uh you can put you can bluff that you know you've read all the Moomins after you've listened to our show. Yeah, that's that's um, ideal for me. Yeah. That's how that's yeah, that's <laughs> basically what I do. Okay. Dave, thank you so much for joining us and um and uh, dear listener i hope you enjoyed the show uh if you want to support the show please consider supporting it on patreon patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships um i'm now going to invite dave to invoice me for appearing on the show that's what we use it for <laughs> we pay ourselves and any freelance guests so uh do help me uh do that and um thank you so much for listening uh bye bye everyone lovely to meet you or to be heard by you take care mm-hmm.